Without further ado, I will like to I would like to introduce our um, our speaker today, Elizabeth Pisani. She's a London-based journalist and epidemiologist. She's best known for her work on HIV/AIDS, and uh, her latest book, Indonesia, etc., examines how and why Indonesia exists. Please join me in welcoming her to the stage. though, aren't I? Um, so a very dangerous thing to try and give a talk about something that we can't even define. Corruption, what is it? Um, Whitney asked the question, where do you draw the line? This is the OED's um, definition, and for anyone who knows anything about my various past lives, you'll find some of the uh, definitions, some of the examples that they choose to give um, amusing. The journalist who wants to expose corruption in high places, but also the word addict conjures up evil and corruption. Um, now, none of this is very useful. It's so generalized. So yes, we can agree that corruption is basically something that's nefarious, probably involving use of influence and use of power uh, for enrichment. But that's not really a good definition, good enough definition, if we want to do something about wiping it out or tackling it, particularly on a global level. Now, luckily, the UN comes to the rescue with a uh, United Nations Convention Against Corruption, which was signed in uh, 2003 and has since been ratified by 140 countries. Now, the UN Convention, which runs to many, many, many pages, also doesn't actually define corruption. They do give us an implementing handbook, um, and the implementing handbook has a whole chapter on defining corruption. And, you know, I'm, I mean, Indonesia is a fantastic language. It's, um, it's a language that loves to uh, wrap up a whole lot of concepts into very short series of letters. So, KKN, which stands for Korupsi, Kolusi, Dan Nepotism, um, actually, and is the current word for corruption, actually covers quite a lot of these things. But lots of them aren't that obvious. So what's the difference between active and passive corruption, for example? If, for example, a prominent politician's daughter is given a scholarship uh, by a college, didn't actually ask for it, no suggestion that there's, you know, been any impropriety. Is that corrupt or not corrupt? And if so, who's guilty of corruption? Is it the college or is it the daughter or is it the, the prominent politician? It's really hard to know. Similarly, if someone sits in the back of a car and takes... 10 grand in cash from a developer, is that corrupt or not? Well, in New South Wales, it's obviously corrupt because there are rules against that. In the United States, it's corrupt if you sit in the back of the car and take it as an individual, but if it's channeled through a political action committee, it's not corrupt at all. The construction and real estate industries gave $25 million uh, in cash in direct campaign contributions in the last election. So the definition of corruption differs by place uh, and it differs across time. So that's really... Um, but it, So we need to kind of narrow down this definition to be able to do anything about it. Um, Academics tend to use the rather simpler definition of use of public office for private gain. But even that's problematic, because what's private gain? Yes, obviously, if you're stuffing 10 grand into your pocket, that's private gain. But in fact, it's my contention that most of the things that constitute private gain are actually about power and votes and things like that. Um, I took this photo in 2012 during the, um, the district elections in Aceh, in the northwest of Indonesia. Um, and you can see the 100,000 rupiah notes flying out of uh, the candidate's pocket. He's candidate for the mayor uh, of the city of Langsa. Um, and to the tune of about uh, 20 billion rupiah, which is about $2 million. Now, that actually doesn't sound... Which is what is it's estimated to cost a candidate to run a, a campaign. It doesn't sound like all that much. 
except that relative to his salary of $500 a month, um, if, you put the, if you put the equivalent, to, for example, to the head of local government in New South Wales, that would be around $20 million um, of campaign funding. And in Indonesia, it all does come out of his pocket because there's essentially no structure for party funding. So I would say that democracy is inherently transactional. It really is. Um, and in an inherently transactional system, you can transact your, you, in different ways. So you can either pay cash for a vote, and that happens quite often in less mature democracies where politicians have yet to figure out that the electorate is a lot more sophisticated than they are and very quickly figures out that they're going to take cash from six or seven candidates and then vote for whoever they were going to vote for anyway. <clears throat> in more mature uh, democracies, we tend to do it rather differently. So it's, you're still exchanging a vote for something. It's just not an envelope of cash. It's a promise of a package uh, of, uh, of policies or measures like, I don't know, no carbon tax or no cuts to education or no cuts to health. Actually, at least with the cash, you know you're going to get it, right? <laughs> um, now, look, it's really easy to make fun of politicians, but in fact, there is a difference between a more mature democracy and simple vote buying. And that is, theoretically, um, that in a democracy, a more mature democracy, there is a public conversation about the package of goods that are on offer to the electorate that's open to public scrutiny. Uh, and once the electorate chooses that package, whichever package they choose, it is delivered to everyone equally, regardless of whom they voted for. And that's the difference between give me your vote and I give you an envelope stuffed with cash and a more, um, and a more mature democracy. Except that, hold on a second, actually, how open is that scrutiny? How open is that discussion? And how much do we all have an equal voice in it? If you look at the United States, for example, the health care industry spent, aside from the money that they spent in direct campaign contributions, which was about $58 million at the last election, they spent half a billion dollars in lobbying and public information activities, which is essentially buying, buying TV time, campaigning very hard through the media, and skewing one industry, skewing that public discourse. What happens when, for instance, one corporation owns 60% of the print media in a country? How much does that skew that open conversation. I think it's open to question. So it's very easy to say, oh, vote buying, that's a bad democracy. We do something much better. But because all democracy is inherently transactional, there is a spectrum. And it's very difficult necessarily to say this form of transaction is better or worse than another form of transaction. Um, in the Indonesian case, uh, vote buying didn't necessarily work so well. This is a news story about a uh, candidate for the Prosperous Justice Party, an Islamic party modeled on the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, who went around trying to get his money back because he didn't win, so was, <laughs> um, which I, I thought was uh, rather charming. Um, now. I think that, so we've talked a bit about the, the spectrum of what's considered legal and different things can be legal and therefore not corrupt in different countries. But there's also a spectrum of things that are acceptable or not acceptable. And here we get into murkier waters because we're now we're talking about uh, the cultural components of, um, of corruption and that makes people um, very nervous. So uh, some of the finger-wagging... Um, Americans like to... Ooh, that's a horrible slide. I'm sorry, you can't read that. But um, the, uh, one of the things that's often said is corruption undermines the trust and shared values that make a society work. 
Now, I had cause to think about that when I was uh, in, in this place, in Ohawaiit, in the Kai Islands in, in eastern Indonesia. Um, it's uh, somewhere that, as you can see, is a long way from virtually anywhere. Um, and uh, it's a tiny, tiny village, which is essentially fisher folk um, and uh, farmers, but which is quite politically well-connected for odd historical reasons. So most households also have a household member who is a civil servant somewhere in the uh, district or uh, provincial um, structure, uh, and therefore they have access to some sort of facilities through that. Now, I visited there in the early 2000s, and I went back again recently, and I was staying with a farmer, and we were I was catching up on all the family gossip and this and that, and he said, oh, yeah, my daughter, I'm so proud of her. She passed the exams to become a civil service teacher, so she wasn't, she didn't, most people pay a large chunk of money to get a post like that, but she didn't. She did it free and fair and passed the exams. And I said, great, you must be so excited. He said, oh, we had a bit of a difficult moment because um, I heard uh, that, that uh, she was about to be posted to Waur, which is a village that is even more uh, remote than Ohawaiit, which has no road. Um, and that was going to be really bad because being posted away from the district capital, you're never going to get a promotion and this and that. So I called the guy who was uh, head of the... And I went to town, no phone signal in Ohawaiit. I went to town... And I uh, talked to the guy who was uh, about to issue the list of who was where and uh, said, you know, you can't post my daughter to world. And he said, I'm really sorry, but the list is done. Everyone knows it's coming out at 2 o'clock today. Nothing I can do. But luckily, <clears throat> one of my Kaluar Gabasar, my big family, my clan, uh, is an MP in Jakarta. So I telephoned him and he telephoned the guy in the office and they delayed the announcement, and now she's uh, got a post in the district capital. Sorted. I was like, ah, good on you. And then a bit later in the conversation, he was saying, oh, how's life in Jakarta? And I was like, oh, it's getting worse and worse. It's just one big traffic jam. It's such a nightmare. I never go anywhere except by motorbike now, and I have all of these routes, rat runs, where I go the wrong way up a one-way street because it saves you, you know, a 45-minute detour. And I keep money clipped to the back of my driving license because if I got caught going the one way up, the wrong way up a one-way street, it kind of facilitates things. Um, <laughs> and I said, you know, oh, I guess that makes me a corrupter, doesn't it? And we all laughed. And then I said, you know, it's funny, in, in the country where I was born, that story of your daughter, um, you know, getting the job through a phone call, some people would think that that was corruption. KKN, corrupsi colucida nepotisma. Silence. And then his wife gets up and says, shall we go to church? <laughs> and, and I felt really bad about that afterwards. I was like, oh, these people have been so kind to me and I've been insulting them and calling them corrupt. And then I thought afterwards, actually, that wasn't what was going on. The reason that there was that awful silence was because they didn't even... It was a total non sequitur. They didn't even get what I was talking about because theirs was not a story about corruption. Theirs was a story about the shared values that make society work. Because in particularly clannish Eastern Indonesia, it's a given that you help members of your clan and your society. So in Australia, the shared values that make society work might be uh, meritocracy um, and uh, equal opportunity. And in that case, the distribution of scholarships or of jobs or whatever would obviously not be influenced by family networks. But in Australia, but in Indonesia, people truly don't want to be part of a society where you abandon your family in that way. So there is a cultural component to these things. Now, this makes people very uncomfortable because it's like saying, oh, well, then some countries are more inherently corrupt than others. But that's only if we try and transfer the framework from one country for regulating corruption, for example, from one country to another. I want to give you another example uh, from this time from up in West Kalimantan, uh, from a village called Nangalauk, uh, which is about three hours by canoe up a river from the nearest road. Um, and it's, it's not a 
particularly rich place. It's not a particularly poor place. Um, but it does participate, as do most villages in Indonesia, in a program called Raskin, which is a, a distribution, it's a social safety net which distributes rice to the poorest families. And about 17 million households in, in Indonesia are involved, including several in Nangalauk. And these... Um, these programs are run by through the local village head, and this is the village head of, of Nangalau. He's putting out his fish traps. Um, and I had just read an evaluation by the World Bank of this program, and they were completely up in arms about it because they said less than a quarter of the rice that's provided through the Raskin program actually reaches the poorest households. Three quarters goes off to other households. So what's that? Well, it's the misdistribution of public funds, and obviously that's corruption. So I asked this gentleman about it. I said, so what do you think about this? He said, oh, you know, this program is a nightmare because... I have my lists, which are put together together with, uh, you know, with data from the Central Bureau of Statistics, and this family's poor, and that family's not, and, and I have my manuals, and I have my protocols, and I'm supposed to give rice to this family, but not to that family. But in this village, that is totally unacceptable, because everyone in this village believes that if we get something from the government, it should be it should be spread equally across the whole village. And that includes the families who are supposed to be the recipients of Raskin. They, they don't want to be sticking out for special treatment. If you get a favour from the government, it should be spread equally. So he said, you know, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. So in the end, I've just spread it equally, and now the World Bank thinks I'm corrupt. So the problem there is not really one of corruption. It's, it's, the problem is trying to take uh, a framework, a legal framework that suits one, um, one situation and apply it to another. Um, now, I don't think I've said anything dangerous or even particularly controversial in saying that there are both um, legal, a legal spectrum and a cultural spectrum of what's acceptable in corruption. Perhaps a little more dangerous uh, is to say that in some cases corruption is actually potentially useful um, and even sometimes necessary. Um, now, an example that uh, many of you may have uh, read a book called Team of Rivals or seen the movie that was based on it, Lincoln. Um, and you'll know in that case that the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which was the amendment that wiped out slavery, was passed by Lincoln in a way that was just riddled with the rankest corruption. He bought off individuals with promises of jobs. He brought off districts with promises of, of uh, projects that would favor that district. He used bullyings. He used threats. All of these things he knew were illegal, but he deemed it worth engaging in these corrupt practices for something that was going to serve a greater social goal that he wasn't able to get through any other way. And since then, the use of federal earmarks, for example, has been an absolutely core part of the American political process. It's a way of getting recalcitrant congressmen to support things that you can't otherwise get through. And a lot of people, you know, pork barreling is the term that's is, is, is commonly used to describe it. Now, a lot of people um, think that that's wasteful and corrupt, and I would have to agree with them, and uh, between 2011 and 2013, there were several attempts to actually try and, um, and, try and address that by making uh, certain forms of pork ballering either less easy or, frankly, illegal. And I think it's contributed dramatically to the gridlock that we've had in the American uh, Congress since then, because... Obviously, we've got the problem of the two parties um, with, with different spheres of influence, but there's no way of essentially greasing the wheels of the, uh, of the um, legislative process to arrive at agreement. Um, in the Indonesian case, um, there's quite an interesting uh, example of how corruption can be 
somewhat beneficial, which is up here in Aceh, um, in the uh, far northwest. Now, many of you will be familiar with Aceh because of the extremely tragic uh, tsunami of 2004, in which uh, 180,000 um, people in, in, in Aceh, North Sumatra, died. Um, what you might not be quite so familiar with uh, is the 30-year on-and-off um, war, that uh, separatist war, that was going on in Aceh um, until the time of the tsunami. It was brutal. A lot of people were displaced. A lot of people were killed. Um, it didn't really hit the international agenda very much. Um, and it became most um, brutal at, after the end of the Suharto era, when the army was really trying to establish itself and um, re-establish its, its uh, creds and power. And the the so there was this, a weird dimension to this because uh, the the leaders of this um, separatist rebellion were sitting very uh, happily in Sweden. So they were in exile in Sweden, and they had sold this line that Aceh had never really been part of Indonesia, that it was always a sovereign uh, sultanate, that it, you know, that the Indonesian occupation, the occupation of the Javanese uh, forces was illegal, and that they could never be part of the state, and they had to fight against it. It's very comfortable sitting in Stockholm saying all of that, slightly less comfortable when you're on the ground being bombarded by the Indonesian military. So the, the um, commanders on the ground started to try and negotiate, but the guys in, in Sweden wouldn't, um, wouldn't uh, yield. So this led to this awful standoff which, in which people continued to die. And then this happened. Um, you know, the tsunami was a very, very terrible thing. Uh, all over Aceh, you had pictures like this. And the Achenese took this as a sign that God was absolutely fed up with all the bickering and wanted peace. I actually take it as a sign that contractors are less likely to fiddle <coughs> on uh, construction of mosques than on construction of other buildings, but um, <laughs> that's uh, both may be true. Um, but it created the opportunity for peace. Now, why? Partly because it allowed people to get out of their entrenched positions and work together, but mostly because the tsunami of Boxing Day 2004 was followed by another tsunami of cash. So, $7 billion in reconstruction funds, $2 billion a year in uh, integration funds from Jakarta directly to the leaders of Aceh to, to spend as they pleased. And on top of that, an extra nearly half billion dollars specifically aimed at integrating the former combatants uh, into this process. So what, what happened was that the, the combatants, um, by which we mean the separatist rebels, had basically been financing their, um, their rebellion by putting the screws on local landowners, but particularly on local business owners, by raising what they called a regional tax. So they were very good at walking into people with a gun and saying about that 10%. And they continued to do that with this great tsunami of money that came in. So the um, Australian or the ANU-based uh, academic Ed Aspinall uh, estimates that, that the former rebels managed to cream off about 10% of all the reconstruction funds and about 40% of all the local government funds. So that gave them a lot to play with. They used that to construct an incredibly ferocious political machine, and that made them very attractive to national politicians. And I was sitting on my way up to Aceh before the last election um, in a cafe, reading a newspaper, and I came across this. Now, the 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 guy whose finger I cut him off because I was so amazed that I just tore it out, and I'm very sad that I now cut off the general. Um, but that finger pointing there uh, belongs to General Sunako, who used to lead the forces against this um, the the rebellion in Aceh, and the. Hello, central casting, how can I help you? Oh, could I have a rebel commander, please? You know, the, the central casting rebel commander there, um, Muzakir, uh, is indeed that. He was the commander of 
the, the Achenese rebels. Now, this story says that Sunako is going to support uh, uh, Muzaki and his, his, uh, his party, the Ache Freedom Party, in the elections. Now, it's hard to describe. This is a bit like a senior Israeli general. And on top of that, these are elections for the post of governor in a province that belongs to a nation which the rebel commander has said doesn't exist. So, or is completely illegitimate. It's a bit like a senior Israeli army general deciding that he's going to run the camp, become campaign manager for Hamas to become mayor of Jerusalem. I mean, it, it, it does your head in in so many ways. But it's a really interesting illustration of how because of all the slush, because of all the cash, because of all the political um, will that was built up on the back of it, actually a, a fractious, rebellious province has been sewn in, knitted in to the body politic of Indonesia. So we've basically got peace through corruption, essentially. Now, I'm not advocating it. I'm simply stating that that's the fact. Now... The Indonesian military, um, I think, has uh, quite an interesting... Um, it get, also gives us interesting lessons um, about corruption. And that is... Um, so everyone knows that all throughout the Suharto years, which were very corrupt, the Indonesian military was a very great beneficiary of, of that corruption. Less well-known is the fact that a lot of the money... So the generals stuffed their pockets, no question, and they stuffed their Singaporean and their Swiss bank accounts, no question. But they also spent the majority of the money that they got from the contracts uh, and the monopolies that they were given by Suharto on regular military activity. Now, there's a history to that, which is that in the, um, after the, the Dutch tried to reoccupy uh, Indonesia after the Declaration of Independence following the Second World War, Indonesia ran a, a, essentially a guerrilla war for, <clears throat> for four years. Um, and, of course, there was no state funding for the military then um, because there was no state. Uh, and so military commanders were essentially given leave to raise money any way they could um, to, to make uh, the, the independence happen, to, to consolidate independence um, through military means. And the current Indonesian military has very, very, very strong roots in that era. Now, the, the, um, in the Suharto era, because he was a great bureaucrat, he sort of bureaucratized that by giving them these, these contracts and these leases instead of by putting military spending on the budget. So as late as 2005, only a third of Indonesia's legitimate military spending, the stuff we know about let alone all the other stuff, was actually funded through the regular budgetary mechanism. And the rest of that money came from other places. Now, in the reforms of, of following the, the end of the Suharto uh, era in 1999, they basically took um, the... They said, oh, what's the military doing in business? And that's corrupt, and it's, you know, it's a, it's, uh, it's a corruption of the democratic process, and we've got to get them out of business. And so they did get them out of business but they didn't look at the other side of the equation, which is, well, then how do they fund themselves? Because a lot of the funding for their legitimate activities are coming from their business activities. And I was working for the Indonesian Ministry of Health at the time. I'm an epidemiologist by trade, um, and I was working in the HIV um, program, and we were trying to figure out what was going on with the HIV epidemic, which was um, driven at that time uh, very much by drug injection. And I got a call from the head of the World Bank saying, oh, we're putting together some briefing notes for the government, and, and what's your recommendation? If you, could, if you could put in one recommendation in your field for a policy change, uh, what would that be? And I wrote back and I said, triple the military budget. And he wrote back and he said, no, 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 you misunderstand. No, I meant for your field, for HIV. And I wrote back and I said, triple the military budget. 
because HIV was being driven by injection drug use. Injection drug use was being driven by a flood of heroin. Now, we'd had virtually no injection drug use and virtually no heroin in Indonesia until the late 1990s. But as the regime destabilized and as the military were pushed out of legitimate sources of financing, they started looking for other more predatory, more dangerous sources of financing. And at one point in, I think, 2002, I sat down with my colleagues. We were mapping, we were trying to map the need for, um, for prevention services for drug users, and we were mapping uh, where the hotspots were for drug injection. I was like, wow, I've seen this map before. I used to be a journalist, so I was pretty familiar with where, with where the major military installations and barracks are. And they mapped onto one another very carefully. So at the beginning of the epidemic of injection drug use, we had a, we had a very, very clear physical contiguity between where there were soldiers and where there was heroin. So am I saying that soldiers should be able to deal smack so that they, you know, can fund their military operations? Well, obviously not. But we do need to think, as we storm around saying, oh, well, we need to wipe out corruption and take the military out of business and all of these things, what function that corruption may have been playing besides simply enriching individuals? So... Corruption makes the world go round, hardly a dangerous idea, um, certainly not a manifesto, um, more of a statement of fact and, and not a very useful one at that. But I do think that if we start to think more carefully and in more nuanced ways about the different types of corruption that exist, uh, we'll do better. So, for example, extractive corruption, graft, taking money from the state and sticking it in a Swiss bank account or buying a luxury yacht with it, taking money from a developer. And, mm, um, you know, that sort of graft is actually rather easier to deal with and very, very important to deal with. Other types of corruption, what I would call distributive corruption, patronage, is actually very often more culturally embedded and very often delivering a lot more to a lot of people much further down the chain. And that's more difficult to deal with. But until we start thinking in more nuanced ways about why corruption exists, about what function it has, and this is not just corruption, why each specific example, why is the Indonesian military doing this? Why is the Australian, why are, why are developers in New South Wales doing that? Unless we start to think in more nuanced ways about this, about the function that it performs and about the cultural roots of it, I don't think we're going to get really anywhere much um, with dealing with corruption. So um, it's a plea not for corruption, but for more nuanced thinking about corruption. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And I'll just um, remind you, if you'd like to ask a question, please find your way to the microphones and, um, and we, will, uh, we will take your questions. Um, but I will kick off, thank you. That was very interesting. Um, so do you think, is, is corruption okay if it is not for private gain but for the greater good, do you think? Um, it's a bit I of a loaded it, question. I, I think if it's for the greater good, then very often it's not corruption. So mm. you may need to use uh, methods that are currently... I mean, there's so many angels dancing on the head of so many pins in this discussion, but, but you know, I think you may need to use tactics which are sometimes not entirely legal or have been deemed illegal um, to arrive at a greater good. I think the, the most dangerous thing, though, is... 
I think that, that every society has to have a discussion about what they consider to be corruption, what mm. they consider to be acceptable or unacceptable. I think it is totally unacceptable to give a bottle of Grange to someone who doesn't even remember drinking it. I mean, <laughs> well, it is unacceptable. I mean, if you can't remember totally drinking it. It's totally unacceptable. It's actually a crime, yeah. I would suggest. <laughs> I mean, go figure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, or remembering uh, writing the note. Yeah, but, you really. Know. Oh, yeah. That's a, um, early onset Alzheimer's in a politician is no uh, is no novelty. Um, <laughs> Occupational um, hazard, I'd say. Exactly. So, so I think that um, you know there are there are more or less acceptable. Um, forms of, of corruption. I think it's really dangerous when we try and have this one-size-fits-all regime and apply it to every situation without actually thinking why those situations arise. So I guess then there, there's, that leads to a question of are we in Australia, uh, I guess, um, judging others by our own standards in terms of you know, the concept of corruption. What we see as corruption here, you know... Might yeah, I would say you are judging others by the standards which you believe uh, <laughs> to, uh, to hold here. I think that, as you pointed out, um, you know, ICAC's been pretty busy lately. So, on the one hand, that does suggest that Australia does have high standards mm. because at least it's you know, it, it's trying to um, discover and investigate and, and prosecute um, instances of corruption. But yes, I think that, um, you know, Australia is a huge uh, funder of uh, good governance um, mm. programs in, in other particularly Asian uh, countries. And I think that, um, I've, I, I shouldn't say this, I've never worked on one, but, um, but what I've seen um, is that they are, not always sufficiently nuanced. So, for example, the, the uh, World Bank uh, evaluation of the Raskin program was funded by Aussie, partly. Um, and, you know, and it's good that we're trying to monitor things, but in, but in all of the, you know, whatever, 98-page report, there was no discussion of the fact that actually there's quite a lot of social approval for some of these things that are coming out in the evaluation as corrupt. Mm. Indonesia has just gone through a huge, you know, federal election. They have a new leader in uh, Joko Widodo, or commonly known as Jokowi. Uh, and there was, you know, contentious. Prabowo was wanting to uh, contest that because he thought that that was a corrupt uh, election. Do you think... <laughs> because he's a plonker, actually. But, <laughs> um, but I, do you see Indonesia changing much under Jokowi's leadership? Um, look, expectations are so high mm. that it will be impossible for him to meet them. I, I think that there will be some changes, but nothing like as, as much as, um, as many people hope for. And I think that that's because um, the, the Jakarta-based political elite in general um, don't, haven't really grasped the effect that uh, decentralization has had um, on what the center can achieve. So there's been a very, very radical decentralization uh, recently. Jokowi knows more about it than most because he came up through that decentralized um, system, first as mayor of the small town of, uh, of Solo in central Java, and then used that as a springboard um, for uh, for... Uh, becoming governor of Jakarta. But even there, so he says, we've got to get rid of this nepotism, for example, in, in appointments. We've got to start, you know, appointing people on the basis of merit, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, he's right. But he's been mayor of a small town in, with one of the highest rates of university <coughs> attendance in the country. And then mayor of Jakarta, where governor of Jakarta, where he has access to virtually infinite human resources. But if you're stuck out in Hawaii or Kapuas Hulu or mm. any of those places, what you find is that this decentralization has created this enormous demand for people, enormous possibilities for patronage, because we now have every uh, 
unit of government, every ministry represented at the district level. And there are 509 districts in Indonesia, we think. The ministry can't quite decide. Um, but there are over 500 districts, each with these things. And when you are stuck out in Kapuas Hulu, you only have four people with any tertiary education to choose from, and you have maybe 900 government jobs to fill. So a meritocracy is kind of difficult in that situation. Mm. And I think that that's a reality that, that Jokowi hasn't really taken on board. So I think, you know, turning everything into a meritocratic system is going to be harder than he thinks. Okay. I have another question about Jokowi, but I want to take this gentleman's question first. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Michael Ahrens from Transparency International. Uh, I was, my question is really directed to not the nuance of corruption, but where do you think it's going, especially in, in relation to Indonesia? Uh, that is, will the KPK efforts be supported as against the police? Uh, will the uh, non-government bodies uh, involved in governance uh, programs up there be given support, uh, allowed to get on with the job? Uh, that is, it's only 20 years, you mentioned the World Bank, it's only 20 years since the World Bank people were allowed to talk about corruption. So. Enormous amounts has changed in bodies like that, and I'm just very interested in your view about really what's going to happen vis-a-vis -vis corruption in Indonesia. The, the, I, the graft, I, the graft sort, not the, not the other. Ah, well, um, the graft sort. I, I think the graft sort actually they're doing quite well at. That's what the Kapekai is, is now focusing on. Um, but I think that you you. Your question um, had something very interesting in it. So you said, well, what do... So the, the Kapika, for those who don't know, is the um, Independent Commission uh, Against Corruption. And they have been um, really very much supported um, by the... the um, much more supported than anyone expected uh, by the outgoing uh, administration, which has been in place for 10 years now. Um, and in fact, they have prosecuted members of, of the president's party, members of his family, um, and they've gone after very big fish in very public cases. But they're working kind of out there on their own. And in your question, you said, well, what do you think about the Kapika? Will they be... Will, will they be uh, supported versus the police. And the fact that the Independent uh, Commission on Corruption is actually in opposition with the police and in opposition with most of the judiciary um, shows how difficult it is going to, 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 how difficult it's going to be to take this forward. So the single most important thing, I think, in Indonesia is judicial reform. Now, the Kapika have actually um, managed to convict the head of the highest court in the land, the Constitutional Court. Um, they've taken down a couple of judges in the anti-corruption courts for corruption. Um, you know, they, but, but, but the structural, I go back to the need to look at the underlying structures of why that corruption is taking place. And I don't think that right now, there has been any terribly systematic effort to do that. It's much easier just to pick off the big fish. You know, here's, a, here's an instance of graft and corruption, flick them out, make a big splash in the papers, than it is to say, okay, what are the structural factors that are actually supporting this whole pyramid of corruption? So I think there's a lot of work to be done much further down, and I don't the judiciary themselves are extremely adept at finding ways to um, to deflect that, um, and and they're working also with. So, so Indonesians regularly they're very good at answering surveys. They're very dutiful about answering surveys, um, and every year there's a survey uh, which asks them what they think the most corrupt institutions are. <laughs> so last year they change from year to year. Last year, the police came in at 91%, thinking they were corrupt. We're a journalist. Um, <laughs> actually, journalists are not so bad. Journalists oh, okay. are quite far down. So number one, police, 91%. Number two, parliament, which is making the laws, including the anti-corruption laws, and which is trying to weaken them now that they've come under scrutiny. That's 87%. And at 86%, the judiciary. And... As long as that's the case, you've got really um, uh, a problem in dealing with it. Inter I'll, so, 
so journalists, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, in general, you know, Indonesia had an incredibly controlled media through all of the Suharto years. I worked in the media then, mm. um, and although I worked for a foreign publication, which gave me some protection, but you were always very, very aware of, you know, one doesn't like to say one engaged in self-censorship, but you were always very aware of the threat of, of telling it like it was. And now there's this incredibly raucous, very free media. Of course, you know, unlike neighboring countries, you've got very big, very rich, very politically influ influential people who own large media corporations. Um, who would that be? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we do have that in, in Indonesia as well, but much to a much lesser extent. It's much more broad and much more raucous. But... Indonesians are very clever at looking for uh, opportunities for a quick buck. And one of the, it's, it, through the Suharto years and beyond, there is an envelope culture mm. in the media as well. So you call people to a press conference and then you hand out envelopes of cash um, to, to help get your message across. Um, and there's now a... So a, there's payola. So there's payola, yeah. Um, and so now you've got a whole lot of people who are pretending to be journalists uh, who are going around <laughs> to press conferences. I think that's called citizen journalism, isn't it? Citizen yeah. journalism. But, but Indonesians have a lovely name for it. I said people, Indonesians like to reduce things to acronisms. So there's an acronym, WTS, WTS, which is a common way of referring to sex workers, um, standing for women without morals. Um, but it's now used for journalists, which stands for wartawan tanpa surat kabar, which means a journalist without a newspaper. Right. <laughs> which is me at the moment. Here's I'd like an envelope. To, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I'd like to take your question, please. Thank you. Um, my name is Kieran Virtual. Um, several Western countries, including the UK, uh, the US, and Australia, have recently enacted legal um, um, law which requires that um, well, any bribery conducted by a construction company in another, another country can be prosecuted in, in the home country. Would you say this is an example of us applying our social mores to other countries? And second question, does that legislation need to differentiate between distributive bribery and the graft kind? Good questions. Mm. Um, I would say, to the first question, is this an example of us applying our norms elsewhere? Not really. You're applying them to your own companies. What it does mean is that you can't then bitch and moan because Chinese and Korean companies are getting all the contracts in a country like Indonesia or whatever. So you, you are indeed applying your laws to your corporate citizens, but in a different corporate <clears throat> environment, and that's going to hamper their ability to act in that corporate environment. If you, as, a, as an electorate, believe that that's a wise decision, that you're happy to forego profits for multinationals overseas in order to uphold standards of, uh, of propriety in, in corporate life, then I think that that's a decision that you guys get to make. But don't bitch and moan because you're losing out to countries that are more flexible in, in their dealings um, in other countries, I would say. Um, distributive versus, uh, versus uh, extractive. I, I think that that's so um, situation-specific. Most corporate corruption is quite extractive, truthfully. I mean, sometimes it's distributive to the extent that it allows a project to go ahead, and therefore it allows for the creation of jobs, and for the creation of, you know, and those jobs do uh, have benefits for people who have those jobs, obviously, in the immediate surroundings. So to that extent, um, it is, uh, it's distributive, but that would be the case regardless of where that company came from, whether it was local or not. Yeah, it can, and quite often you'll have one contract, for example, to build a school and you're expected to build a park alongside it or, or there's other sort of things that you... you right, well, you New York City and London to. do that too, don't they? I mean, that's, yeah. that's part of the 
the contract, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The, I mean, one thing that, that I, I think that we do see is that very often um, the things, you know, I said at the beginning, we, we have a different spectrum of what's legal and what's not legal, what's required and not, what's not required. We also have a, a, a spectrum of at what point a fee is levied or whatever. I clip money to the back of my driver's license because I can't actually be bothered to go through the whole due process. You know, I give, I give 20 bucks to the guy at immigration because I haven't done my whole visa process properly. In Australia, I give 145 bucks to the immigration people, <laughs> you know, but it's part and of And that's your... when you filled it out properly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's part of your legal process. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, was, I just wanted to ask you, actually, on the, the reputational, I guess, um, sort of impact of corruption on Indonesia. Uh, in my experience, um, you know, Indonesia's been wanting to do a lot of business with Australia um, with, through foreign direct investment or trade or whatever. Um, but, you know, corruption is an issue, uh, reputationally, is it actually viewed that way inside Indonesia in terms of Indonesian business thinking, oh, we have a reputational issue externally to, to try to attract foreign investors and foreign, foreign business? Oh, yeah. Um, Indonesians are crap at sports. Um, biggest difference between these neighbouring countries has got to be in the sporting field. So, <laughs> nation of 250 million people sent a total of 22 athletes to the, uh, to the uh, Summer Olympics in the UK, 2012. Um, and six or seven of those got disqualified for corruption, actually, funnily enough. <laughs> Um, but, but, and, so, and Indonesians are very funny about this. And they're like, oh, if only we had a World Cup of corruption. At least we'd win something. Um, so uh, people are very aware of it and very aware of how that plays in mm. the global thing. Now, I'm being slightly facetious because I'm talking about people that you meet on boats and at tea stalls. But obviously, that's an issue in the corporate environment. And it is very difficult for the rather small number of, of companies that, that do play by, you know, most of the rules because they, they are tarred um, with that brush. And so they're, they're starting, I think, from, um, you yeah. know, very far from a level playing field. They have a huge hurdle to jump over even to be considered uh, as, a, as a legitimate business partner. So, yeah, it does. It hurts the corporate world enormously. So I guess that brings me to the question that I... The other question I had about Jacoby, and that is that... Um, you know, trade missions to Indonesia have been largely um, linked to the federal government as well. So, you know, as you would have known, Tony Abbott, one of his first ports of call um, after being elected was to go to Indonesia and he took quite a lot of uh, high-level business people with him. Um, and, you know, even though there is the issues of spying and, and the tensions over that, uh, you know, his relationship with SBY, they tried to sort of uh, forge ahead on the business front. Do you, and, and, and SBY was seen to be diplomatically um, performing, you know, well, performing, in a, I guess, uh, more positively, diplomatically or, or open than, say, his foreign minister. He was letting Marty Nadalagawa do that. Um, do you see that that Joker Widodo will be a diplomat in an SBY fashion, or do you think he will have an entirely different style? He's much younger, he's, he's much more, you know... Um, he's... His accessible, style, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I, I, honestly, I think that Indonesia is going to turn in on itself right. for a while. Okay. Um, uh, SBY was really um, one of the most out looking presidents mm. for a long time. Um, he really did quite a lot to increase Indonesia's involvement in, um, in regional activities, in global activities, um, in UN bodies. I think that um, Jokowi's uh, style, as we've seen it, so we've seen it in a small town, 
in a big city, and now we're about to see it on the national thing. But he really starts with the detail mm. and works up from there. And his detail is going to be the domestic detail. He's not a grandstander. He's not a man of great visions, um, you know, expressed on, on a big screen. He's the opposite of, for example, a Sukarno, who was all about image um, mm. and, and not at all about, about delivery. Um, so I think that... Honestly, I think Australia has missed a massive opportunity in the 10 years of the, uh, of the SBA um, uh, leadership to actually increase relationships with, uh, with Indonesia. So Indonesia turning in on itself, is that a good thing for Indonesia, do you think, in the long run? Yeah, I don't think it's a turning in in, a, in an insular in a way. I way. No, I don't think so. I think it's just, look, we've got a lot to do to get our house in order. You know, <clears throat> we need to build infrastructure. We need to do judicial reform. We need to, all while balancing this incredible diversity of, mm. you know, we've got, you know, how many political parties in in in. The, 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 in the parliament, we're going to have a very diverse cabinet, we already know that. Mm. Um, you know, you're, it's an incredibly difficult balancing act. And so I think that the, the inward lookingness is just, it's not self-absorption, it's just, we really need to focus on getting some stuff done. And I think that that's the sort of president that Jokowi will be. You mentioned decentralization as being... Can we get back onto the topic? <laughs> I, I, do, sorry, did you have a question? If you wanted to just go to the I've microphone. Got a question. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> um, one of the things which is required for my understanding is for good economic development is first of all trust in the system. And to have trust, you need transparency. And I'm not convinced that even distributive justice is going to give you that transparency which you need for trust and therefore development. It'll get you jobs in the short run within the context of your culture, but it's not going to take you far. Um, it's an interesting observation. I'm not sure I 100% agree with it, because if we just look at it empirically, uh, again, I'm sorry to, for those who are bored by the Indonesia topic, but I come back to, to that example. We've had, very, we've had interesting differences in models of corruption um, over... The, the last uh, 50 years or so. And actually, one of the most effective models of corruption in terms of delivering development in the longer term was Suharto's model. Why? And this, to your point, actually, because his model of corruption was quite transparent. It was still corruption, but it was rather transparent corruption. So you knew what the price was, you knew who you had to pay it to, and once you paid it, you got, you know, everything got delivered as planned. We've now got a much, much less transparent, much more fuzzy, although actually lower cost overall, probably, um, form of corruption. And that's, I agree, more... Um, uh, is, is getting in the way more. So, yes, you need transparency, but you can have that transparency in corruption itself, oddly enough. Okay. Um, my name is Letta Webb. In, in, a, in a more developed democracy like Australia, what role do you think the type of body as New South Wales ICAC is plays in actually preventing corruption rather than actually just exposing corruption? Very good question, which I am not really able to answer. I'm not knowledgeable enough to answer. I would say um, that... Um, that as the anti-corruption bodies become overall more effective, the further you go down the spectrum of, of development and, and the de particularly the maturity uh, of a democracy, because all the other institutions are also more effective. But how effective they are at prevention it depends really on you as, a, as a, an electorate and a group of citizens and how much you really, um, how much people who, who are put through the ICAC process are actually then sanctioned, unable to, to 
become elected, unable to get jobs, unable to, you know, it really, how much of a deterrent it is depends not necessarily on the ICAC process, but what on, on what happens after that. And part of that is mediated by society in general. There, there's... Um, one of the things um, that's happened in, in less developed um, democracies is there's a danger that if you have these very, very high-profile um, bodies like ICAC in, or the KPK in the case of Indonesia, what happens is that the people who are most... who are closest to walking a straight line who are not wanting to be corrupt, who are trying as hard as they can not to be corrupt, actually just give up politics completely because it's impossible not to be corrupt mm. and I don't want to go through that thing of exposure by the KPK, etc. Um, so in a way, there's a danger that too... This is kind of a weird thing to say, but in a way, there's a danger that too much scrutiny actually drives out the better... Um, politicians or the better businesses um, and leaves the field to the worst ones. And it goes back to the question that was asked earlier about, uh, about corporations. You know, you drive out the good ones and you leave the field to the total charlatans. We, we're going to have to leave it there. We've run over time. But um, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much thank for joining us today. Thank you.